using blockchain technology, Ethereum technology, really for enterprise use. Kyrgyz uh, was asking me to do a small interaction on blockchain, which is actually <laughs> quite challenging, but hey, let's give it a try. Um, I think it's, it's clear and, and you know, uh, I think that uh, there's, there's broad consensus that the potential that blockchain can have in, in, in society is similar to the effect that internet had uh, years ago, right? Um, and I think the parallelism between internet and blockchain is actually quite appropriate. I think the stories are kind of similar. Uh, so it, it's nice to understand why internet was created to understand what blockchain can bring. And internet was created at the end of the Cold War uh, as a way to find a better way to do communications in a more resilient way, right? So the problem was that if you had, uh, you have New York here, you have San Francisco here, you have Chicago in the middle, and all the communications go through Chicago through a big communications uh, center. If a atomic bomb comes and into Chicago, then you get no communications for the whole country. So because of a single point of failure, the whole system can be broken, right? And um, so, so the DARPA essentially invited TCPIP, TCPIP, which is a way to decentralize communications. Essentially, you have a node, you surround that node with other nodes, and then others, and then others, and what you create is a mesh that produces, well, not infinite, but many potential paths from one node to another, right? And then you can, you, you know, I mean, you, you can get rid of one node, you can destroy 10%, 50%, 60% of the nodes, and you always find a way to go from one node to another, right? So, so that system is a lot more resilient. It's a lot, uh, uh, has several advantages. First of all, it's a lot more resilient because it's, it's, uh, it's resistant to, to attacks, uh, to centralized attacks. There's no central point of failure. And uh, the other very important benefit is that it's very cheap because each of those nodes are not a critical infrastructure, right? Uh, you can you can you can make the the, the system work with uh, failures in uh, one or several of these nodes. And the other very nice thing is that access is very simple and it's a very very scalable, right? I mean, if you want to connect thousands or millions of people through a single point, uh, this point has to be <laughs> really big. It, it doesn't scale well. However, in this other situation, you can just add more nodes and the complexity just grows logarithmically. So uh, there, there are many advantages. And that is what produced uh, all the internet revolution as we know it today. Now, the idea of blockchain is, and I like to say that blockchain does value what internet made to communications, right? Because the internet as we know it today uh, um, does not store value. It, it decentralizes communications, but it does not decentralize value. Um, and by value, what I mean is what we store in ledgers. Value today is stored in ledgers. Um, a, a bank is a good example of a ledger, right? We have a bank where it says, you know, Julio has this much and Antonio has this much. And you see, it's a database where you have all the segregation of funds. In this case, that is, that is the ledger. And the world today in the internet is composed of, descent of, of uh, centralized ledgers uh, that, that, that are uh, managed by sources of trust, right? The trusted agents. For example, a bank. Right? But there are many other examples, like a utility company, telco company, you know, any, any, anything, right? And the world today is composed of ledgers like that, which are uh, managed by sources of trust, and they are interconnected using the internet, right? But the value itself lives at these sources of trust. Um, this is not a bad construct. I mean, <laughs> the world works, right? It's just that it has some problems, some inefficiencies. The first one is that the ledger has to be very safe has to be very, very secure, right? And 
when you want to make something secure, um, you have to protect it. Essentially, when you want something to be very secure, you put it in a safe. <laughs> That's really what we do with our systems, right? In a core banking system, you, you just put it, you surround it with all kinds of uh, cybersecurity measures. We have all kinds of segregation of accounts, um, uh, segregation of uh, responsibilities, I mean, right? So, so the guy that designs the system is different from the one that implements it, is different from the one that uses it, is different from the one that maintains it. You, you see, because it's, it's very, very critical. I mean, that database cannot be hacked because if it's hacked, we go to jail. <laughs> you see, it's, it's a big, big problem. Uh, and therefore, it's not thought for innovation, right? The systems are not really thought for innovation. They're they are thought to be really, really safe and really secure. The other thing is that they're expensive. We have to spend a lot of money in making these things really resilient because they are central points of failure, like, like in the case of Chicago before. Um, and the other thing is that they are not very interactive, right? And a good example of this is payments, right? You, you, you want to do a payment, I have a bank, you have a bank, I have a ledger, you have a ledger, and now a payment is just you know, reducing the amount of my account and increasing the amount in your account. Okay, how, how do we do it? On the count of three? You see, you, you, you need to do that atomically, and, and that's not easy. And that's why we need intermediaries, we need correspondent banks, we need CLS, we need compensation chambers, we need Euroclear, we need all, all, all Visa, MasterCard, you know, all, all these things. Uh, which all of them work, it's, it's no, nothing wrong. It's just that all of them would have a different ledger and now synchronizing everything is, is difficult, it's complicated, it leads to reconciliations, sometimes it leads to disputes, it leads to batches in the middle as well and, and well, and the results you, you, you all know, right? I mean, you're trying to move money from Spain to India or even a Latin American country or something like that, and it can take a week easily, right? Um, so, so and, and this is because these systems are not prepared, are, are not really designed for inter interoperability. They are designed, again, to be very secure. Now, blockchain, what, uh, I mean, the, the, the way blockchain uh, uh, provides um, a solution for this, and blockchain was invited by, uh, was invented by the Bitcoin community, really. Uh, although we're not talking about Bitcoin today, we're really talking about blockchain, which is the underlying technology. Um, this, the, the way they solved this was, instead of having separate ledgers for sources of truth, what they had is just one single ledger. And that ledger was going to be hyper-replicated in as many nodes as you wanted. Right? So you have a big, big net, and all of these nets are going to have a copy of the same ledger. So it's decentralizing right? the, 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 the management of that ledger. And that system is, you know, has some of the advantages of the internet. Right? First of all, you have one single uh, shared ledger, which is a single version of truth. So now suddenly there is no reconciliations. There's no, 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 no potential problems because we, we don't have different versions of truth. We just have one. Right? You don't believe me? Just just go and take a look at the notes. It's not my fault. You see, you, we, we don't need to trust each other. The 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 other important aspect is that it is very cheap, right? It is quite cheap because each of these nodes are not critical. No 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 one of these nodes is going to be critical. Um, it's also very resilient. You can attack one node. You can attack two nodes. You can attack ten nodes. Um, you cannot attack the twenty thousand nodes in the block in the Bitcoin network. It's just impossible, right? And uh, if the if the nodes are trusted entities like banks or, or big corporations, you know, it's, it's just essentially impossible. 
And the other nice thing is that it works real time, right? We just make transactions to the ledger and they just happen or they don't happen. But uh, there's really uh, no batch needed, no, no several legs or something like that. So, so that's, so, and, and, and that's why we say that blockchain can be the internet of value because it provides a decentralized way of uh, storing and managing value. You, you see, that's, that's a, the, the parallel. With, uh, with the internet, not, not, not just decentralizing communications, but decentralizing value. Um, in fact, the real, the real goal for the Bitcoin community when they created all this was to get rid of the very concept, the very concept of trust, right? The world today is based on, on, on these trusted entities we were talking about. They wanted to create a system that is totally, totally uh, trustless, where you don't really need trust. The first, uh, the first thing why, or the first point where you need trust is when you want to uh, uh, authenticate, you want to show your identity. You want to say who you are, right? You for example, in a bank you would go, you would enter your uh, login and password, and then the bank would, would have a copy of that or a hash of that or something that would authenticate. And you would authenticate against a source of trust, in this case, the bank. In the case of, uh, of Bitcoin and blockchain, uh, you don't do that. Essentially, what you work is you, you, you have your private and public and private keys. You can generate those keys your own, and you use cryptography to, to authenticate yourself. The way you do it is you create your, your keys on your own. You don't depend on anyone to do that. And then you can produce transactions, and you can sign those transactions with your private keys because anybody can check that the signature corresponds to your public key without you sharing your private key. You see, you don't need to show your private key to anyone. You don't need to trust anyone. The whole thing is totally trustless. We're not going to elaborate about how then the signature, I mean, the, the, the transaction goes into the community and the whole community checks that the uh, transaction is valid. We, we don't have time, but that's really the concept. Essentially, you send your transaction to the whole community and the whole community certifies it or not. They arrive to a consensus. And again, you don't need to trust a single validator, right? A single uh, um, a certifier of your transaction. And the whole share ledger just keeps evolving, right? As we, as, as, as we go. Um, the next evolution of, of that, um, because originally the, the, the Bitcoin construct was just, was just a ledger. And it's still, still essentially a ledger. And a ledger is a very dumb thing. It's just a bunch of identities, in this case public keys, and, and a bunch of amounts. That, that's really what Bitcoin is. It's just an entry on a database. It's not more than that. It does not represent anything. It's not backed by a central bank or, 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 or anything like that, right? Um, the next evolution of this was the, uh, what they call smart contracts. And this was introduced really well by the um, Ethereum community. Um, the original Bitcoin construct does have some early version of smart contracts, but, um, but it's, it's, it's very limited compared to the Ethereum uh, uh, construct. And essentially here, what you have in the case of Ethereum is that instead of having this ledger, what you have is the possibility to have programs. Those contracts are really programs, and the programs are really the ledger, right? What is a program? A program is just a bunch of data and a bunch of code. With the data, you can model whatever you want. And with the code, you essentially uh, put there the, the rules to operate with that data. That, that's really what a program is. It's really not much more than that. The beauty of the Ethereum platform is that those programs, you can put them into the ledger. And suddenly, what you have is really like a shared supercomputer where everybody has access to, right? 
So it's like if, if instead of having my own computer that I need to maintain and then you need to trust, what we have is a shared supercomputer that cannot be tampered with. So I can write a program, I can put the program into this computer and then you'll be able to see it and we'll be able to operate it. And we don't need to trust each other because we just see what the code does and we either accept it or not. You see, you you, we just need to, to, trust, to trust math and the power of universe, but not each other. Um, uh, sounds like gibberish, but it's actually uh, relatively simple to, to, to understand. This is just uh, uh, an example. It's a, I call it a crypto bank. It's like a, it's like a prepaid card, right? You have data, as I said before. In this case, uh, it's, it's balance. I call it balance. This is, would be the amount of, uh, of money that you have in your digital uh, wallet. Uh, let's say it's a, it's a prepaid card or your PayPal wallet. It's like, this is like, like your PayPal wallet. And then you have code, which is what you can do with that balance. In this case, for example, transferring, right? So, so what is a transfer? If the sender has enough money, right? If the balance of the sender is bigger than the amount, then the balance of the sender, I take the amount from the balance of the sender and I add the amount to the balance of the receiver. That's a transfer. <laughs> it's very simple, right? The beauty is that all that is totally transparent to the whole community and it cannot be tampered with. You don't need to trust me that uh, I'm holding the balance for you. It's just there, you see? And the beauty of this is that this is visible to everyone and we can do all kinds of applications collaboratively and in a decentralized way. That's really a smart contract. It's really not much more than that. Now, um, what can you do with, with these smart contracts, right? This data, you can use it to, to represent whatever you want. And that we do through what we call the tokenization process. Right? And that's why I say tokenization makes blockchain useful in the real world because it allows you to work with tokenized, with, with digital representations of real assets. Right? So let's call about money, for example. Not that money is very real, right? Because it only lives as balances in <laughs> bank accounts, right? So it's not like uh, watts of cash, right? But um, so, so we have the core banking system here where you have accounts. You essentially move the money from the client account into an omnibus account, which is just another bank account within the banking system. And then the tokenizer, which is a program that lives within the firewall, will issue the balance on the smart contract. So essentially you move the real money into the bank account, and then the bank generates a token, which is this digital representation of your money on the smart ledger. So essentially, now what you have is a digital representation of your money that you can use freely, right? It's a recourse against the real money that is held here. And you can pay with that. You can do whatever you want with that, right? And at some point, you can redeem it. So at some point, you can come back to the bank and say, hey, I don't want the digital money anymore. Just give me the real money. So then the bank will destroy it and will give you the money from the money account to your client account again. So you can tokenize money and detokenize money. Now, what can you do with digital money? whatever you want, but the beauty is that that digital money lives on a decentralized platform. So anybody can access it, and we can create all kinds of applications. You don't need to come to the bank through an API. I mean, you will have to be really qualified for us to allow you to come through our API. <laughs> Why? Because it's a very critical system, and we really don't want to go to jail, you see? Uh, now here, it's a lot easier to build all these applications. It's a lot cheaper. It's very, very easy, it's very cheap. And we can do innovation a lot better. I mean, because we can generate all kinds of digital representations of goods there, and we can create digitally native applications on, or 
natively digital applications <laughs> on that decentralized ledger. Uh, example, we tokenize cash. A utility tokenizes the right to consume some electrical power. And we create a decentralized application here that allows you to pay for power, for example, to uh, uh, recharge electric cars. I mean, this you can do with banking technology, but you will need, in this smart plug, you'll have to have like a POS thing with Visa or MasterCard or something like that. It's going to be expensive. I mean, the average recharge in an electric car is like five euros. And, and then you'll have to plug this into the banking system. <laughs> you see, it's, it's, it's cumbersome. And it can be done. It, it works. But uh, this is a potentially a more frictionless way to do it. You digitize the money. They digitize electricity. You just pay. That's it. You see? There are many, many applications that you can do with tokenization that we will not have a lot of time to, to, to explain right now. The next step is instead of tokenizing things, so instead of representing actual or, or I hate to call them real, I'm sorry, but traditional assets, let's say, into the smart contracts, instead of doing that, what you can do is you can actually create digitally native assets. For example, a share. Have you heard about ICOs and all these things? Well, you could create actually a share, and a share is uh, a title uh, that represents um, uh, property, right, of a company. So you could automate, for example, dividend payments, right? You could get all this cash, this digital cash, you could send it to the, the smart contract, and in that smart contract, the data in the smart contract, you remember, you can reflect, you can, you can model the ownership of the shares, so then you can disburse the payments according to the different percentage of uh, owning, uh, ownership, right? Or you can have like uh, lockups for transmission rights for uh, uh, the owners, I mean the, the, the founders, you have, can do tag-alongs, rag-alongs, voting rights, uh, stock options, I mean you can, you can do whatever you want because this is a digital platform where you can model whatever you want. And this case it would be, it would be native. You're creating a share on top of the centralized ledger, right? And, and you can make it work with uh, other tokens. Anyway, all, 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 all these are the possibilities for, for, for blockchain. Um, now, uh, I wanted to tell you uh, a little bit about what we're doing in, in Spain in the Alastria network, because all, all these things um, are typically done on public networks, and the public networks like Ethereum or like Bitcoin, they were, they were created to be totally uncensorable, right? Uh, and, and very open to everyone with absolutely no control uh, no, no, yeah, no, no censorship and no possibility to control it by any single party. Now, um, in, in, in enterprise settings, uh, what we use is permission blockchains. Permission blockchains is kind of a good proxy, but not totally decentralized. So essentially what we do is we create um, a set of what we call validator nodes, and those validator nodes are the ones responsible for certifying the transactions. So you don't, you don't depend on just one party, what you depend is on a combination of parties, but at least, I mean, so, so this is decentralized, but it's not like fully decentralized, right? The whole thing is governed by uh, a bunch of uh, nodes, right? Like 20, 25, 30, whatever you want. And these guys will have to do all the validation. Also, they will be permissioning the participation of other nodes. Like I can come with my node, I want to participate in this network, I cannot do it freely. I have to apply and these guys will need to permission me. So this way we can create a permission network that is not reliant on a single party, but on a combination of parties, right? You see, it's, it's less decentralized, but it can be more controlled and we can censor it. We can 
kick off someone that is playing funny, for example, right? Uh, that's what it can do. Uh, the benefits of this is that it can get a lot better, um, lot better scalability and performance. With these things, we can get hundreds, if not a few thousands of transactions per second. The global, I mean, the, the, the public networks like Bitcoin, <laughs> I mean, it's not going to be more than three transactions per second at the peak. And Ethereum, <laughs> it's going to be like 15 or 20 with the last improvements, not much more than that. Uh, with this, you, you can do like, like thousands of, of them at the expense of less decentralization and more control, right? Um, so what are we doing in Alaska? In, 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 in Spain, we just got together the biggest companies in Spain and also some entrepreneurs and, and the public administration and some universities and we decided to try this for real. <laughs> so we're kind of tired of doing presentations and we said, okay, let's just do it for, for real and we, we said, let's put together a permission network. And that's what we did. Um, one of the reasons we wanted to do this is because it is challenging for large corporations to work with the public networks. First is all this thing about the you know, cryptocurrencies and the compliance aspects related to them. But the most important point is that it is not very easy to use public blockchains today. Um, and the first reason is because they are expensive. For example, in Ethereum, if you want to send a transaction in Ethereum, you'll have to buy some Ether. Ether is the cryptocurrency which is associated to Ethereum, right? And uh, you need that Ether because you need to pay a little bit of Ether for, um, uh, for a transaction. Well, that little bit of Ether <laughs> is now <laughs> a little bit more <laughs> than a little bit. So it's gonna cost like one or two dollars per transaction. And we've seen peaks like 20, 25 transactions, uh, sorry, 20, 25 dollars. Uh, you know, when you compare that to like, you know, real transactional cost, it's really a lot, right? Um, this is a small joke. Um, so this is the price uh, evolution of Bitcoin, but you can see it upside down. If I want to use the network, not to speculate with cryptocurrencies, but to actually use the network as a shared supercomputer, as I explained, then the increase in the price of Bitcoin is actually an increase in the cost for transactions. So this is the way I see the world. Right? Today, if I want to do a transaction in the Bitcoin network, even now that is like down to $6,000, it's gonna be like several tens of dollars. It's very expensive, right? So, so speculation is one thing, but really using this thing for real is exactly the opposite. So what we said is, let's put together a network, and, uh, and, and the network is just a point in the middle of a, of a spectrum, right? On the, on the left, you have the really trustless uh, public networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum where there's really no, no trust at all, there's really no control, totally uncensorable, and probably is the most indestructible thing you can have, right? It's just impossible to destruct. On the right, you have centralized systems, right? Completely centralized systems. Uh, or centralized blockchains. There are some, it's, it's kind of an oxymoron, but there are some people that put together blockchains and they are controlled by one single party. Uh, Fine. <laughs> anyway, all right, right. There, there, are, there, are, there are these ideas as well. So in the middle, and, and you have also private consortiums that will be participated by just a small club of, of people. Well, in the middle, this is what we're trying to do here. It's a, it's a public permission network. It serves as a, as, a, as a public utility, really. It's a public infrastructure, right? But it's not totally decentralized. And the, and, and the reason for that is because we wanted to make it compliant. Right? We want to, to be able to support legally binding transactions. And when you, when you want to have legally binding transactions, the first thing you need to do is 
you need to identify who is going to take part in those transactions, right? So we need a way to control who is participating and uh, KYC somehow these, these people, right? That, that's why we prefer or we try to do a permission uh, uh, network that is, at this point, is kind of an alternative to the public network to do enterprise grade and legally binding application. Uh, all the benefits I said before, like higher performance, uh, transaction finality in one block, um, we'll not elaborate about that, but the, the finality of transactions in public networks is probabilistic. It takes some, some, some blocks to, to happen. In this one, you can do it in just one block. And uh, it's not fully decentralized, but we say it's good enough, right? Because it depends on that trusted validator set. In the case of Alastria, we're talking about 25 to 30 validators, where you have people like Santander Bank, BBVA Bank, Endesa, which is a, a public utility, Repsol, which is the biggest oil, uh, oil company in Spain, uh, you'll have Telefonica, you'll have the big system integrators. So these are people that have a reputation to lose, right, if they act funny. You see, so you don't need mining and all these things because the validators have something to lose, right? They have already the incentive to stay honest. The only little problem this has is that it requires implementing a decentralized governance model. That's a beautiful challenge, <laughs> but it is a challenge. And surprisingly enough, you know, we're kind of, you know, doing it and having a lot of fun in the process. So it can be done. Uh, just a list of all the people that has already joined, more than 170 members, all the biggest banks, big and, biggest energy companies, uh, service providers, and so on, um, and, and, and counting. Not all of them have nodes. Uh, we already have a test node. It's already like 30 institutions with nodes in the system and starting to do the first applications. It will take some time. And, um, just, uh, just to finish, because I think that we're not doing that good on time, um, Alastria does not create decentralized applications. It just fosters the creation of a decentralized network. It will be all the companies and all the actors in the society, the ones that will be building the network in a decentralized fashion. And they are the ones that will be building the applications, okay? Um, we try to say that this is co-opetition. We are collaborating to create the network and then we will compete on top of that decentralized platform. But as a participant, I don't need to ask for permission to do my application. I just do whatever I want. It's a public utility. That's really what it is. There's just one exception, which is digital identity. And Alastria is creating uh, digital, not even Alastria, I mean, some, some enthusiastic members of Alastria are creating uh, an Alastria-sponsored, if you will, legal uh, identity uh, system on, on, on blockchain. Um, the idea here is to have a compliant way, I mean, a, a common way to have a legally binding uh, way to identify people, right? Because then the decentralized applications we build on top of this will be legally binding. That's the whole thing. And the idea here is not to create a separate digital identity system compared to the system, the, 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 um, uh, the identity system we have in Spain, which as in the other members of the European Union is a great system. It really works. It's something we should actually be quite proud of uh, if you compare it particularly with US or places like that. I mean, the identity systems we have really work. So in this case, what we're saying is, Let's tokenize identity in the same way I tokenize money or, or energy or something. We tokenize identity, and then we can create those digital applications that are legally binding. That's, that's the whole thing, okay? Uh, the way we do it is a, as a, as a self-sovereign identity system where essentially you create your repository and you get different people to check 
uh, and, and certify and attest uh, uh, whatever claims you want to make. So you can show who you are or different attributes of who you are depending on what the transactions are. I'm not going to elaborate because we're going to have a much better speaker on this thing, right? <laughs> um, anyway, just, just, just to finish, we've talked about competition, this idea of tokenization, digital identity. The last thing I wanted to say is that we do believe this can be a great tool for digitizing our economy and to foster the collaboration between large and small uh, companies, right, when we do innovation. I, I mean, I, I work for a bank. It's, it's a big bank. And we do hackathons. You do hackathons as well, right? I mean, we do a lot of them. And, you know, a bunch of guys, 25 years old, really bright. They come with this wonderful application, let's say, for uh, robo-advisory. Beautiful thing. Very smart. And we give them like $10,000 as a prize, and they're like you know, jumping and, and, and so on. Okay. Now what? Are we going to deploy that thing within our system? <laughs> Are we going to open the APIs <laughs> to these guys? Uh, and, and who's going to explain this to the regulator? <laughs> you see, it's, it's, it's a critical system, right? Um, with this, what we can do is we tokenize the access to the accounts, and then these very bright guys can create the applications on the decentralized ledger. It's a great way to innovate, and we don't need to open our systems or any other corporate systems to, to, to these people. We can't just get everybody working together on a digital realm, which is digital, is secure because of cryptography, and is resilient because of hyper-replication, and it's very, very cheap to try out, very, very cheap. So the, the, the price we can give them to these guys is really put it in production rather than the $10,000 that's really useless, you see? Anyway, I'm going to stop here Thank because you. I can't be talking forever. Thank you, Julio. Uh, I think it was interesting uh, to get uh, an idea uh, how blockchain works, uh, what is uh, uh, the benefit, uh, the, what are the benefits it brings, but also to see an interesting application from uh, uh, Spain. Uh, now let's move to the uh, to discuss a little bit more the implications of blockchain platforms. Um, let's uh, postpone the discussion after the initial statements by all the speakers because we are a little bit out of time. We'll start with Jorhan. Uh, and uh, let us uh, know your academic view on this. Thank you. Let's see, you can, yeah, the microphone seems to be working. Thank you. Um, so after this uh, fascinating introduction, you all now know what the blockchain is. And now uh, uh, that we have taken uh, uh, the, the current position, all this, this stuff which everybody already know, I'm going to take you a glimpse at the future. Because I'm from an academic institution, so for us to be relevant, we existed already for a few hundred years, and then you see all these fin startups who have a lifetime of six months or something, a life expectancy, uh, and we need to outsmart them. And this is very hard. Uh, it's my job, actually. So, um, yeah, so I'm from Delft University of Technology. Uh, you can see I've been in this field for a while. I'm a peer-to-peer -peer at Gmail. And so all my life, I've been platforms of trust. I've been doing this for 18 years, and suddenly every come Every company comes to my field. It's like, it used to be so much fun. I used to know everybody who worked in this field, all 20 of us. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, uh, uh, we seem to be one of the largest uh, academic uh, non-profit, uh, uh, non-ICO, uh, no startup. We create a new ecosystem uh, lab in, uh, in Europe. So we, uh, we currently have uh, 65 master students. We're one of the only one, I think, in Europe who has a full year of academic level, uh, a master level. 
We also now have a PhD uh, uh, track called not blockchain engineering, but advanced blockchain engineering. We're not very creative sometimes. Uh, and we have uh, eight professors, and that's our true power. Um, I talk to these professors, they're like, hey, you want to join the blockchain lab? Yeah, it's hip and happening. Okay, you can get easy funding, like like five or half a million or something, if you just put the blockchain stamp on it. It's like, oh, okay, I want to have a look at it. Um, and then you get them on board, and you seduce them a bit further. So that's how academics usually don't cooperate. Huh? One of the hard rules <laughs> is that I'm not a nice guy when I'm in the lab. If your code does not work, you will not get your bachelor's degree. You will not get your master's degree or not your PhD degree. It needs to have running code. That's not very nice. It's like this academic tower, and you play it around a bit. You philosophize a bit. No, we're hardcore engineer. How many engineers are in the room? Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, my team is 100% engineer. We, we only have part-time support staff. How many, how many bankers are in the room? Oh, dear, I need to watch out now. OK. Uh, Fascinating. Okay. Uh, yeah, we, I can talk for a year then huh, about blockchain matters. So, what I'm talking for 12 minute slot, I will explain to you what we believe is uh, the next step as we saw the current ecosystem and everybody's doing their ICOs and all these things. That, yeah, that, that hype needs to die down a bit and then the ledger. And you see that now it's very, very nice that, uh, uh, that the financial institutions are taking. Uh, the permissioned uh, blockchains, they're starting to take them in production. What is happening? They were trustless. And there was one fascinating sentence. They play honest. They don't play funny. They don't talk, okay, banks talk about lying, cheating, and, and fraudulent behavior. No, they don't act funny because they have a reputation to lose. That is mechanism design. That is Nobel Prize winning game theory. People act honest, and legal entities will play for the future. If they can cheat once, then they go to jail, and a day of reckoning is coming. What we're now doing is we're creating mechanisms of trust using blockchain, all this new, new stuff, which we have never been able to do without any central point without any ownership. And then exactly what's happening uh, in Spain, that nobody will go outside the law or cheat or violate uh, the, uh, uh, the direct uh, contractual obligations because they want to stay in the ecosystem. What we want to do with the blockchain, and that's the fascinating thing as, a, as an engineer, it's a tamper-proof data system. So we can do that for the first time. It's taken me 11 years of my life to work on this system. I'm one of the few uh, blockchain grandpas. Uh, and what we're doing now, instead of moving, creating money without banks, uh, that's the current generation, we're creating trust. 1995, that's one of the first times that we had e-commerce. People were still afraid to use their credit card online. They had a gossip system. It's called a mailing list. You talked about, in Silicon Valley, who could be trust, trusted and who was offering scams. Completely bottom-up, for the citizens and by the system, completely unregulated. You can also use it to buy drugs and stuff, like, yeah. Uh, I'm from the Netherlands, so everything is legal in my country. <laughs> then we had eBay. They formalized it. They made a huge profit out of it. 
a star rating. And that's the core of building trust. Because trust is something you cannot visualize easy and things, but you put some stars down it, everybody knows that five stars is better than one star. And so we need to communicate to the user and, and, and formalize that model. Scientists uh, for sure, from AI have been talking for years about trust systems. They don't work. Um, these companies make trust work. Airbnb and Uber. You have like these venture capitalists funded. They charge you 20%, of course. But um, you, you, you get in a car of a complete stranger. No criminal background check by any government. No regulation. No taxi license. And you don't get murdered. <laughs> Why? An algorithm actually fires them if their quality rating below, drops below four star. Welcome to the robot economy. So there's a central entity in control. We have not solved to decentralize this. This is correctly identified as the open uh, uh, challenge. Um, Mount Gox, the largest bank heist, uh, 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 one of the largest uh, bank heists we, we know, where the value is again from the customer. There's Bitcoin to, to real coins uh, exchanged by some central bank. And then KYC compliance was a bit of an issue. Uh, slightly unregulated and, ah, oh, well. Um, and it all went wrong. But it was an open market where customers could buy and sell all their, uh, their tokens. It was fascinating. It, it, it worked perfectly until they all got hacked. Um, and then 2017, this is I'll talk about more. We have created uh, one of the first uh, open clearance and settlement uh, market without asking the banks. And we think that's legal under PSD2. Oh. Um, so I've been working on this stuff, peer-to-peer, uh, uh, -peer, I measure peer-to-peer -peer systems for two years of my life, uh, in my previous life. And then 2007, we deployed what we then called distributed accounting system. Uh, that's when we're still 20 of us in this field. Um, yeah, so that's deployed in 2007, all funded, by the way, by the European Commission. So we're very grateful for our 19 million euros. of. Uh, so the first primitive ledger is actually funded by the Europe. Um, it didn't have so much security, but it did have scalability. So Bitcoin is coming from another way. Eh? We, had full, we have full unbounded scalability. We, we don't compromise on that. Uh, and we just added security along the way. Bitcoin is seeing that, yeah, scalability is actually not an easy thing. Yes, we knew that. Um, we're, of course, very jealous because we haven't created a billion-dollar ecosystem. Um, so this is uh, what we had uh, operational. So we're creating the worst token economy. This is what all the ICOs are promising if you speculate in them. Uh, so we have been building this quietly uh, uh, for, uh, for 11 uh, years and four months, but who's counting? Um, you see here the journal publications on all of these key things where we're creating, yeah, so we needed to pick an app. So we just choose BitTorrent because it has few hundred, 200 million customers. And on YouTube's side, it has 1 billion customers. So there's a clear need. Um, so we're creating the ultimate BitTorrent client. Who has ever installed Tor on their computer? Oh, we have some nerds here. Oh, that's cool. And who uses Tor for their daily browsing needs? Okay, let the record show nobody does that. No, because it, it kills your performance. Uh, that's a, uh, so what we're doing is we're creating, uh, um, uh, so we have the Tor network, so we have one of the only ethical darknets uh, out there, uh, combining with BitTorrent and then offering a YouTube service. Yes, that is very explosive. Um, 
and it's Dutch, so it's legally compliant. Um, <laughs> so this is a, a, the streaming side. You have uh, Torrent proxies. You need to incentivize. Uh, you have token miners, so that's people who in, formerly known as the YouTube servers. So money is not going to to infrastructure provider like Google. It's going to the citizens and only the citizens. Hallelujah. Oh, and you don't need a bank because you can now tokenize this. So all rewards to the artists, you can express them in bandwidth. Yeah, that's hard to explain. Uh, anyways, you just uh, tokenize this. Yeah, this is also hard to get academically published or get an ERC grant and all this stuff because it's like, this is never going to work. Well, so we created an operational bandwidth market in 2014. So we're very happy, and this is also very relevant for the single market. Uh, I'm a bit skeptical that, that we have these regional markets and then that we have something like a European market, but that only exists in the legal realm. But in the electronic realm, you will have only a single global worldwide market because it's a winner-takes-all uh, uh, ecosystem. There will be no oxygen for the number two, number two in these systems. Who knows the number two bookseller in the world? My point. <laughs> it's, uh, so Barnes & Noble. So Amazon is the number one bookseller, and you, 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 you can't just compete with these things. Uh, economics, uh, economists have just recently shown uh, uh, mathematically that there's, a, uh, that there's predatory behavior and monopolist inherent in these market structures because size attracts size. Uh, others. Uh, anyway, so implementation. So we have designed and deployed uh, these decentralized markets. Uh, we've done it for um, um, decentralized decentralized market for mortgage investments because that's uh, on the asset, on the balance sheet of banks it's the it's the cash cap so we got their attention and they decide to fund us so we always like that um, so yeah this is all online research then you need to know what github is so it's all come, my lab is fully open source and and fully lives on on the on the internet so you can see all my weekly meetings with my students you can see that uh, on their old postdocs so it's a market where you can do anything and we have our own token on there. Uh, th that's for experimentation. And then uh, mortgage and all these things. So you can do, as this is how it looks. Uh, this is released a week ago. It's going in production. You can have some wallets like Bitcoins or Ethereum or something. You can trade them for the tokens we do bandwidth. So this is operational technology, a live deployment. So this is quite different than all the ICOs who are promising you uh, uh, all these things. Yeah, we've been, we're not faster or smart or something. We, we just started in 2007. Um, right, uh, that also means we need to hurry up a bit because I have too much competition. Uh, so I did a write-up of this in the ITF, Internet Standardization. We, we, in my group, a previous time, we managed to get a, a standard uh, there approved. So this is just pro, pure R uh, thing. There is no work group yet. Uh, this is all going a bit too fast for ISO, but there is a lot of activity uh, there, especially in the identity track, which I fully support. Um, why are we doing this? We don't need to drive a car anymore. We don't need to drive trucks anymore. The robot economy is coming. Programmable economy, but it doesn't have the doom and gloom, so you can't get attention. So, eh? so things that can be automated will be automated. Huh? It's cheaper to buy a welding machine than to buy a welder in China. This is a very specific point. So we see that already in the physical world. It's already happening. Bankers are next. Lawyers can be automated. You just saw the, the, the script there. It's, it's amazing. What we did, 
This is, a, this is the academic publication. This is our roadmap for how to put the majority of the European economy on the blockchain. Wow. Yeah, this is a bit too much for most people. Just remember how much you loved your smartphone 10 years ago. This is how much you're going to see the blockchain in coming 10 years. Not the stuff we see now. There's going to be a lot of disappointment, and we see already the eco scams are, are doing. This is the real thing. I just have one PhD student. Because we have already some basic of trust and, and things, and repeated encounters and, and that stuff. We have, because we're focusing fully on the trust system, like you see with eBay and all these things, we have a generic solution for that. In a few months, you can, we have fully implemented an Uber competitor where you can match supply and demand for taxi services without any governance, without any middleman, anybody taking a 20% cut, poof, it just lives on your phone. And the other people also install some magic app on the phone, of course, created with European subsidies. You don't need a middleman anymore. This is amazing. Deficiency is, 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 is ruthless. It's, uh, yeah, because things don't cost anything anymore. So um, laws for creating trust in the blockchain age. It's just 40 pages. And uh, so uh, I've talked uh, uh, only for a few minutes about this. Oh, this yeah, it's created using open office on a Linux box, so it doesn't do well with things here. Anyway, so uh, I talked about a, a, a few things. Most people focus on consensus and things. What we have with our trust chain, it does not need consensus. Huh? This is a bit more advanced on all the Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's just a bit difficult to talk to these people. Uh, so the, the word trustless, I don't like that so much because we've been building for 2,000 years Institute of Trust, and then Bitcoin and Ethereum, they make them redundant. So what we've done uh, also because they give us funding, uh, we, we use their core strength to actually amplify trust. That's what Trust Chain does. Um, by having repeated encounters, and you have these multiple star ratings, you actually build trust in these uh, things, and you have things like distributed temple page rank, there's also some mathematics in there, which is fancy. And there's real-time clearance and settlement that you can do five seconds all over Europe, uh, legally combined on PSD2. Oh, and this market thing. You can buy and sell anything. This is not fantasy stuff. This is all operational. You can download that from GitHub. Um, and this is coming to your business model in the coming five years. Um, the last slide? Good. So then, uh, uh, wrapping up. Um, so what we have is we have all these stars, and uh, what's happening at Academic World, we're generalizing that. If you have multiple encounters, hey, you rate stars on, on App Store or something, you rate people, you add people to LinkedIn, you have a social connection there. If you can build one tamper-proof infrastructure to record at all, some sort of blockchain magic, and everybody can build open systems on top of that, and you can scale to billions of users, right? the current number of people on the internet. You just created the trust network on the internet 
we always needed for 40 years and we have never been able to build. Probably the coming years we're building it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we'll turn now to Petris. Uh, so I think we had a very uh, impressive overview of blockchain applications, the value they bring. Uh, so we are all very interested to hear what the Commission is doing in this field, uh, how we can promote uh, innovation, how we can promote uh, SMEs uh, investing in that, and looking forward for your speech. You have the microphone. I have the microphone. Oh, thank you very much. I'm in a privileged position because I've already had, uh, how to say, very good communicators explain the blockchain to everybody. So I can just talk a little bit about the political and legal framework part. There's very much attention given to blockchain now. I mean, we'll the, be the first to say that there's a lot of hype, but we are very positive about a lot of the potential applications of blockchain. You see them, uh, you see blockchain technologies identified in the upcoming FinTech action plan, which will be coming on the 7th of March, Vice President Dombrovskis along with my commissioner, Maria Gabriel. Also in the midterm review of the digital single market, where it's signaled as one of the breakthrough technologies that Europe should be investing in. You also saw in the European Council conclusions of October, where along with artificial intelligence, again, blockchain is mentioned as one of the areas that the commission should pay attention to. And and in fact, you see also in the Atomica State of the Union or the State of the Union Tech 2017 report that it said within deep tech, artificial intelligence and blockchain are seen as areas where Europe is best positioned to gain world leading status. What are we doing at the European Union level? For some years, and I have colleagues here, we have been investing in research in uh, DG Connect in the digital single market area in various directorates, various applications, in health, in decentralized internet social applications, also in the fintech area now. We've launched an EU blockchain observatory and forum, uh, Commissioner Gabriel with MEP von Weisecker and the CEO Joseph Lubin of Consensus, who's leading the consortium that won the bid, uh, announced this on the 1st of February. We will have an upcoming inception meeting, and then soon after that we'll be setting up work streams. So your experts uh, and the topics that you think should be covered can be proposed to us. Obviously we have some ideas of our own. I mean, first of all, you have the momentum of the FinTech Action Plan, but also other areas, logistics, health, others are definitely on the table. We're engaging in standardization, as was mentioned, in Sensenelec, uh, ITU, uh, International Standardization Organization, Technical Committee 307. I'm personally implicating myself on the smart contracts and members of my team on the other areas like reference architecture, semantics, etc., which are so important for success. We're also bringing together, and this will probably be streamlined or mainstreamed into the blockchain observatory, but legal experts to look at issues, how uh, blockchain can be compliant with the general data protection regulation, how it can be compliant, or how a fitness check can fix some of the issues, let's say, in existing bodies of law, which should be technology neutral, but sometimes do specify a specific centralized database or even paper still. 
Um, also, we have published a study and we're about to uh, assess the uh, applications for that on the feasibility and opportunity of an EU public blockchain infrastructure. And the idea here is not to dictate that there will be one blockchain in Europe, but we do see and we have very strong collaboration with a number of member states. I mean, we see this very interesting initiative from Alastria here, but not only we see in the Netherlands, we see in Malta, uh, we see in France, we see in Estonia, Lithuania, other countries. What we would want to make sure is that there is an interoperability framework, whether this is through a chain of chains, other technologies which might uh, foresee that, how to say, either the assets or the transactions can go cross-chain. This is something we'd very much like to explore. And then possibly in the next uh, MFF multi-annual uh, multi framework, multi-annual uh, financial framework, different uh, MFFs, um, we would like to possibly make investments to make sure in areas like, for instance, reg tech, uh, areas like VAT reporting, chemicals registration, climate change, environment, others. You could have cross-border exchange of information available in a shared ledger with those who, who need to know. Uh, this would be on the permissioned um, ledger model, obviously, I mean, between the member states potentially. So this is something that also could be an outcome of the observatory and forum and other processes that are going on. I spoke myself this morning, and I'm not showing you slides, but I'm quoting a few of the relevant things um, that I showed this morning at the uh, steering group of the e-government action plan, who in fact in their Tallinn declaration, they uh, noted blockchain as being one of the very high potential applications also in, in e-government, though obviously not exclusively, also for the private sector and for startups. Again, we emphasize that we, we don't believe the hype. We're taking a critical look on where this can be used, but which we think are a lot of areas. It's not all services. Uh, we think that we need a framework enabling experimentation, development, piloting, and implementing public services beyond isolated actions, just proof of concept. Clear structure and rules for governance. I mean, whatever approach we use, especially again, if there's a regulatory aspect or how to say e-government, but I mean also for areas like e-commerce and so on, you have to have consumer protection. Um, interoperability, scalability, the issue that was mentioned. It's very fast if you have a limited number of validating nodes. If we look at the public blockchains, uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum for the moment before they move to proof of stake, it is still, still a little bit slow. Uh, security, we have to build in or see with the existing models that cybersecurity is there from the very beginning and also look to the future. You have this off-sited example of when the first quantum computer goes online. Of course, it will be able to hack anything, but it will also be able to probably hack the blockchain. Sustainability, uh, energy efficiency trade-off. Uh, we know that uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum for the moment, as long as it's still on proof of work, are not, are not green. But even if you move to the permission models, they do because of the duplication of the chains, probably use more energy than the system that exists now. 
But perhaps, and I mean, we're very happy also to get your inputs on this, the maintenance costs and expenditures could be so much less because of not having to go, uh, not having as much downtime, that this might compensate for it. So again, if we're recommending it for e-government use and so on, this is also where we are taking the studies on hand and um, trying to make sure that uh, we have all the facts in a fast-moving area. And that's where we are, and both today I'd be happy to answer questions afterwards, obviously, and to get your inputs and comments now or later. Thanks so much and for being also very time efficient. Um, right. uh, for the EU-wide um, uh, platform perspective, does it work? You hear me? Yeah. Uh, for the EU-wide platform perspective, I would like also to hear your views from this side of the table. For example, how we could uh, arrive to an Alastria in European level, since it is um, such a, an efficient platform, and what are the challenges for that, and uh, what are the steps to achieve? But before that, uh, um, uh, we talk uh, about um, blockchain. Um, the first thing that comes to our, our mind is uh, banking, transactions, but how it affects the energy sector. So we have Anna to talk, um, uh, to explain to us the implications of, uh, of, of blockchain in energy. Yes, um, I'll be happy to do so, but maybe the, the, yes, it should be working. You should, you should be hearing me well. Uh, very briefly before that, just a question to see how uh, trustful are we of trustless systems. How many of you own either a Bitcoin or another alt currency? Okay, so a good number of people for, for Brussels, I would say. But this should be also an example as to how uh, advanced the, the topic is in terms of penetrating the wider public and, and how much we can expect in very short terms for it to disrupt uh, all the traditional sectors. We, we hope it will, in, in a way. I will be very brief because I do think that there is room for a lot of fruitful discussions and debates among us, and certainly I also have some questions for the presentations before that. I'm happy to say that uh, for once maybe we are a little bit ahead from the European Commission because we already have our work streams within Euroelectric dedicated to blockchain use cases in electricity. So we have three of those uh, focusing on trading, uh, flexibility and mobility, and in fact uh, we have published an interim report the detail in detail explains what are the current uh, pilot projects and potential use cases in the future of blockchain uh, in e-mobility in particular. And um, I'm also happy to, to build on, on your intervention just now because our initial approach within the platform was really to, to look critically, if you wish, at what's the immediate potential of blockchain in the energy system and what are the current uh, bottlenecks that actually might hamper the, the ability of that technology to really take the, the space that everyone claims it would be taking very soon. Uh, I will uh, very quickly go through the slides, as I mentioned, to us currently what uh, the blockchain um, can do uh, in terms of uh, the energy sector. It's very important to underline this here. is uh, immutable and transparent accounting, the time stamping effect, the, the, the notion that something will enter the ledger at the exact time that a transaction or an action was done, distributed decentralized information sharing, uh, and enabling a transactive grid, uh, which was referenced before digitizing physical assets. Of course, as a critical infrastructure sector, this is of paramount importance for electricity. But, uh, of course, there are still issues that are not resolved, and in 
particular when we speak of blockchain, we, uh, we thought, think of a public blockchain because when you discuss uh, the topic with a purist, if you wish, from a technological perspective, this is the kind of blockchain they imagine. Uh, private blockchains are already variations that uh, question a bit this notion of a decentralized, democratic, uh, distributed uh, uh, software solutions. So there is the issue of over-transparency, uh, the GDPR um, uh, implications, uh, and of course cybersecurity, what would happen if it's actually possible for an enemy in a world of asymmetric uh, information to know exactly where a critical infrastructure of the electricity sector is located. Speed, scale, and cost to us are also not resolved to really allow for this uh, world of uh, microtransactions between peers to peers uh, every second. Right now, it costs a lot. If you were among the lucky ones to buy a Bitcoin a few months ago, uh, you have probably experienced the issue of all the different platforms asking you to wait 10 minutes before your uh, fiat currency turns into a Bitcoin or an Ether. Uh, and then you know that you have probably paid around 10 euros for, for the luxury of owning a, a Bitcoin or an Ether, not even a whole Bitcoin or an Ether. So, here are some of the use cases and the projects that are already going on. The, the good thing is that you're all going to get these slides. I was a bit um, constrained, let's put it this way. In two days, Euroelectric will have its big uh, brand refresh uh, event up to now. Up to then, we have embargo on, on using our new uh, communication uh, tools. So uh, a very simple slide for me just to underline the different uh, opportunities out there. As you see, uh, we put a lot of emphasis of what can be the future of blockchain in the energy. Right now, really, it's about pilot projects and testing together and failing fast together as to really uh, understanding what are uh, the, the use cases that will bring true value uh, today, but in the future, and the use cases that use exclusively blockchain that cannot be done over a different existing software solution. So this is uh, a leading thought within uh, the, the experts of the blockchain platform to really try to differentiate what is the unique selling proposition of blockchain uh, in comparison to other software solutions. While we do that, we keep three important clashes in our mind. Uh, first, I've already underlined the race to lock in a solution. So a lot of software providers, enterprise solution providers are in that race to actually make sure that big uh, industries uh, choose a winner, a bit like Microsoft in the beginning of uh, the computing era. And then, of course, the other, the, the purest ethos of blockchain. So the open, really fully decentralized uh, every single citizen kind of open environment. And we keep this in mind when we assess the different options for the energy sector. Then this first clash goes to the second clash, a platform uh, future or a silo approach where you have to think of the future interoperability of different private blockchains uh, as opposed to creating one future shared platform. Um, and finally, uh, connectivity first or security second uh, versus our uh, underlying challenge, always system reliability and economic predictability. What would happen if consumers in two to five years are exposed to a volatile market similar to the Bitcoin market uh, in a system that uh, unbalances are not actually anyone's responsibility? 
how to really, in a fast-paced world, uh, make sure that the energy system is, uh, and the electricity system is digitized in such a way and within a, such a governance uh, system of blockchain uh, technology that all these responsibilities are taken care of. And finally, how to get there, the future blockchain uh, DLT ecosystem, I fully agree, the winner will take it all uh, at the end, but uh, it's very important that all the actors that would end up in this future are actually getting experienced with the technology as early as possible. To the utility sector, this is already happening, both through this discussion platform that we have, where we conceptualize, if you wish, uh, the potential of blockchain, but also through uh, startup discovery, uh, trying to get on board the innovators, the critical thinkers, uh, those who actually also question the hype of blockchain, uh, and really testing together some solutions. And there are quite a few pilot projects across Europe, which I'll be happy to share with you outside of this uh, environment, just to show that uh, the utility sector is actually vested already in this uh, and has already actually running against some regulatory challenges in different jurisdictions uh, and is completely aware that uh, a fully, fully enabled uh, blockchain future really depends on a, a open discussion and co-creation cooperation today. Um, so, thank you. Thanks so much. It was uh, an excellent uh, talk to start, initiate the discussion. Um, you mentioned that you also have some questions. Uh, would you like to move forward with them right now? Uh, yes, uh, uh, one of the questions also conceptually bothering, so to say, the 61 experts we have, we haven't gone to 65 yet uh, within the blockchain platform, uh, is uh, whether the European Commission actually considers uh, the creation of a Eurocoin, of some sort of a tokenized uh, currency at EU level, uh, which would then enable the really trusted tokenization of all sorts of uh, physical and digital assets across the EU. Uh, we seem in our discussions to often arrive uh, to, to that challenge as a, and a potential enabler uh, as a key point in the discussion. So. I, I, I can answer to this. It's a, a relatively easy answer. I mean, this would be for the European Central Bank. Uh, they do have a couple of papers on this, and I mean, we have been in discussions with them more on how to say, out of intellectual interest, and also perhaps if we do have a common European blockchain or chain of chains, for instance, uh, whether it could be utilized there. Um, they have definitely assessed it. And, I mean, from my impression, some of the issues are what this would do to, to bank stability and perhaps enabling runs on banks makes it something that is probably not, how to say, wished in the, in the very near future. But in any case, that would be in an ECB and, uh, how to say, the national central bank's context where the decision will finally be taken. I can talk about what we're doing on a kind of practical level, if you want. Um, <clears throat> So we're trying, we are, we're quite interested and quite committed to the idea of creating digital money on a decentralized ledger. Because if you do that, you essentially enable whatever economic applications you want to, to do, right? The thing is how to do this without, you know, creating stability problems with the monetary policy and all this thing. So we're working on a spectrum, and I would say four different possibilities. On the left, uh, we would do commercial bank-backed money, which is not a central bank-backed money but it's a good proxy, right? Essentially, I put the money, as I said before, in an omnibus account, I create a digital representation of that, and that is essentially a crypto euro, which is backed by a commercial bank. 
right? But that behaves a lot like a cryptocurrency. It's just that it's not volatile, right? You have to trust the bank. It's, it's codified. The next step is, uh, okay, I create that token and I back that token with a, a bunch of, or all of the commercial banks. That uh, forces us to create a compensation mechanism. But if we do it, that really looks a lot like a commercial bank. It's like a common digital money license, if you want, right? It is a little bit more cumbersome, but at least reduces the dependency on just one bank, right? This is something we are actively um, exploring with, uh, you know, in, in, at the national level, really. The next step is, um, and, and we have a project for this, the utility settlement coin project you may have heard about. This is something we launched with, uh, with Santander, with uh, UBS and Deutsche Bank, and now it's open to another 10 banks. Um, and the idea here is we create a vehicle. We put a license, and we give a license to that vehicle. And then that vehicle will have an RTGS account and a central bank. And uh, so essentially, you give me a, a, you, a bank, give me a dollar, I put a dollar or an euro, I put a euro in the ECB, and then I give you a crypto euro, which is now backed by the central bank through a vehicle. We've taken most of the counterparty risk out of that, but not 100% of it, right? But it's a, it starts to be a really good proxy. That project is um, hopefully soon going to enter uh, the FCA sandbox to do in the UK. And uh, we are discussing that as well with the ECB, um, although it's not like decided or anything because of the implications. And the fourth step that uh, we're now doing in Europe uh, is uh, directly asking the central bank to issue digital currency on an RTGS account on a decentralized ledger, right? The only cases I know about that is Singapore, Monetary, uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore is called Project Ubin. Actually, Consensus, the one in the observatory, uh, did that and actually they did it using zero knowledge proofs uh, to make it really uh, anonymous and it works quite well. They are now replicating that in, in South Africa as well. And there are uh, other less advanced talks with a few more central banks, most notably probably Canada and, uh, and a few more. Um, that project is not being discussed with the ECB, at least not yet. <laughs> Right? But there are, there, are, there are a bunch of ways to at least try to find proxies for that and start experimenting with it in a sandbox environment. That's uh, as, as far probably as we can get at this point. Yeah, um, just to, um, this is a fascinating discussion. So that is also what should be the, the ideal role uh, for the commission as, as the commercial parties are pioneering, various sectors are, are, are being changed. Um, I think governments choosing technologies or, or picking winners or, or, or let, let's create a, block, a chain of change. I think you also mentioned the word sandbox, that the regulatory challenge is actually the biggest one for all the, uh, for all the ecosystems. Uh, so identity, uh, that is something we first need to crack, then, then contracts, uh, uh, markets, and, and also the governance uh, issue. So I think if I can, from, from my personal perspective and the academic and what we see uh, happening also in the, in the Dutch national coalition and all these things, um, a bit of room to violate outdated rules and principles. Um, it's called the regulatory sandbox, right? That the regulator is watching exactly what you do and then you can legally break the rules. Is that, is that roughly how it works? Um. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I do want to keep my job, yes, but that's not... No, I, I, you know what? I really hate the word disruption. I don't think we really should focus on disruptive things. I think there's still some room, and I know I'm not being like 
a, a true innovator, if you want. But I do think there are ways to adapt this wonderful technology, which is blockchain and many others as well, um, to our reality and just do it a little bit more incrementally, right? So, so for me, I think is is it's a lot better to try to. I mean, either comply with regulation or create new regulation for something that is new. I think most of the problems we have, it's not like we want to break the rules. It's just that there are no rules we want to build. Like, for example, this decentralized cash, this, this cash thing we were talking about, right? This, this digital money. Okay, we, we have digital money today. There are electronic money entities today, right? And the point is that if I'm an issuer of digital money, I am fully responsible for the segregation of accounts of my clients. And at that, I can guarantee when I have my database in my firewall, in my systems, and so on. Now, suddenly, I don't have that in my system. That lives in a smart contract that I control, but it's decentralized. Is that legal or not? Mm, I'm not breaking the rules. It's just that there are no rules for something like this. So, so, so the beauty of the sandbox for me is let's put the sandbox, let's do it, let's get the regulators to participate there as observers, right? And let's build this together. Let's try to find the problems. Let's try to understand this together. And by the end of the process, the regulator, not us, will decide whether this is legal or not. It's a much better way than us trying and just asking for approval or something that they don't know about and so on. That, that's that's my this, I mean, this is a concept that, I mean, we're very much supporting at the European Commission. You saw in the startups to scale-ups communication of already 2016 that the European Commission would look at, for a way to enable regulatory sandboxes, and I think you can be sure that there will be an initiative in the FinTech Action Plan on the 7th of March, and in fact, with this thing that, you, as you see, we're still defining with the observatory, with all of you who are interested, if we do undertake a European blockchain, blockchains set of investments at the European level, a sandbox approach would be the way that we would want to, to implement it. Thank you. I think it's time to open the floor for questions. There is a question here at the Woodrow. Uh, we'll collect three, four questions and we'll answer afterwards. Please raise the hands. Uh, there is a question back there afterwards. Let's start. Well, I guess my... my my first question is on, on Alastria uh, itself um, uh, and the issue of trust. So for blockchain, you don't need trust. Uh, for Alastria, you need sort of some trust, right, in, in, in the big players. And what is sort of immediately striking is that this trust that you have is basically a trust uh, in a national context, right? So it's Santander knowing Telefonica, Telefonica knowing uh, BBVA, and so on and so forth. It's not European or a global uh, endeavor it's it's basically pretty pretty local or regional endeavor so I guess my first question would it would be uh, is is that the way to go uh, at the European level um, with a system where we need some form of trust for a small number of players but you know not not fully decentralized or no trust uh, uh, basically uh, fully decentralized system to to ensure trust so, so I guess that's my first question um, my, my my second question is on um, on the system, um, uh, on on uh, what what you mentioned um, as regards um, the winner takes all um, from Dev. So I, I'm not sure I fully got that. I mean, so so in a in a centralized platform setting, I understand that the winner 
under certain circumstances may be able to take all because he basically has all the information and therefore has a huge advantage. Now, in a blockchain environment, uh, isn't the information itself decentralized and therefore everybody can essentially use it, use new apps on it, and so on. So what exactly do you mean with uh, the winner The winner takes all in, in a blockchain, in a blockchain uh, context? I mean, uh, I thought it's the full democratization, so to speak, of, um, of business activity, but, but perhaps I got something wrong, so, so perhaps you can dwell a bit more on that. Thank you. Thank you. And there was a question back there. Thank you. Um, uh, sort of dual question, but picking up on the last uh, exchange that the panel had. Um, first, I think Peter mentioned um, links with uh, international bodies such as uh, ITU, Sensen, ELEC, ISO. I'd be very interested to hear more about what sort of standardization you see or whether there's a need for standardization, if that's why there is disengagement with international organization. And, and related to that and that, that previous exchange, I'm, I'm curious to hear whether or what your thoughts are about governance in this sphere in the future, I think, as has been discussed by all the panelists, in particular, your, your electric is a good diagram showing the, the breadth of stakeholders in this ecosystem. Um, could you just come back again on, on, on how you see the role of the Commission, the role of policymakers and governments in this, and the importance of having uh, perhaps uh, a multi-stakeholder approach to governance in this field rather than one that's top-down, government-driven? Thank you. May I ask to identify sure, yourself? Sure, uh, I can. Thank you. Yes, uh, last question there. Uh, hello, Geoffrey Beignet from Alphalis Consult. My um, question is from Mr. Zilgelves. So some countries are taking the path of legislation on blockchain technologies. For example, France uh, is having a project of ordinance on ICOs. Um, how do you intend to keep one single market on blockchain technology without rushing into EU legislation. Thanks. If there is more time, we'll come mm -hmm. back. So, responses. Start with Alastria. Okay, so starting, um, starting with Alastria, the question was about whether it is sufficiently decentralized and whether it, 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 it depends on trust. <laughs> And so on. So, they, they, and, and second about the why is it a national thing and not a European-wide or global scale. Um, so, uh, the thing is, we're very practical. <laughs> and we need to start fiddling with this thing, otherwise we're just going to be debating and debating and, and you know, we, we need to, to try something. So, uh, we, we do believe that decentralization is a, is a good thing, right? Because uh, and it's not so much because of the issue of trust, it's really because it removes potential problems. I mean, I think we have very little, very little concern that you know, one of the biggest banks in Spain or in any country will turn dishonest. Again, there's a lot to, to lose, right, when you have a reputation to, uh, uh, you know, and a regulation to, to comply with. Um, so, so we wanted to have a good enough proxy to a fully decentralized uh, uh, network, right? And it's not, and in this case, it's not Santander trusting Telefonica and Telefonica trusting PVA. It's about 170 companies, and there's going to be a delegation on 25 or 30 of them to do the validation of the network. Doing the validation of the network is it's a very simple thing. I mean, it's just running a node and validator node. That that 
and validator mode, that's, that's the whole thing. It's not a lot more mystic than that. And the, the institutions do not trust themselves individually. The point is that the, 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 the community of 25 or 30 people, th that community is the one that you're going to trust. So it's really decentralized. It's not fully decentralized, but it's decentralized and we think it's a, it's a good proxy for a fully decentralized thing. It's just that it is easy to create a governance mechanism with 30 institutions, and it's impossible to do it with any institution that wants to participate in the governance, right? So just by abiding to a very clear and very lean uh, rules, like, you know, uh, don't spam the network, like uh, uh, don't do illegal things, right? or uh, don't uh, do something that goes against the reputation of the association, which is a judgment call and then needs a little bit more judgment, right, what you do. I mean, just very basic, basic rules. It is easy to create this sort of, uh, of governance. And it doesn't need trust, it is true, but it's trust on a very decentralized group of like 30 of the biggest companies or even public institutions, right, in the, in the, in the world. So we think it's a good, it's a good practice, it's a practical way to, to start. Maybe at some point we'll be able to do it in a fully decentralized way on a public network, hopefully, but we need to start somewhere. And, and, and the other question was about uh, why it is national. And again, it is, it is a practical thing. I mean, we wanted to do applications that are legally binding. And a country is a place where the, the legal framework is homogeneous and it's clear and it's very well uh, done. Now, uh, we do have ideas to expand Alastria, let's say, to Latin America, which is a very n normal place for us, right? Because there's a lot of, you know, a lot of relationship between our companies and, and subsidiaries and so on. That would be a huge challenge because the legal framework is so different. Now, coming eastwards uh, to Europe is a very natural way. So it, it would be very easy to open it up to uh, European companies and then you know, keep, keep, keep growing this, this thing without losing an angle on what Peter said of uh, uh, interoperability and, and, and so on. It's not really national by design or by you know, conviction. <laughs> it's just a practical way to, to start. And I do think it would be very easy to get uh, European counterparties to to, to join this thing. I mean, we'd be, we'd be delighted to, to open it up uh, uh, you know, as soon as this is, a, I mean, at least a little bit more stable. Yeah, just to uh, cherry pick a bit on the question. So the, 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 the interesting examples, so should we choose local or central or the European approach? Everything. We have no idea what the blockchain, how it's going to look in 10 years. So we should just try it all and hope not, not everything fails. Um, and keep, keep an open mind. Um, and, and especially as, as, as players know each other, and they, 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 that's probably where we learn the most lesson. And that's also an interesting, just do it. Uh, we, we don't learn about it when we're, we're not developing and learning our lessons. It's the learn by doing approach. And there is no textbook you can download. There is uh, not many courses which are actually valuable. Um, so it, 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 we're still inventing how to do this in the real world, not, not how to make some fantasy coins. Yeah, that, that, that a lot of people know that now. And they change every week. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so and just um, uh, to clarify the winner takes all uh, in blockchain context, that is, is fascinating. What we see now is we have, uh, last time I counted, it's like 4,000 coins. This is a very dynamic. So there's going to be shakeout. Um, and, and that's something if, what we've seen a lot in technology. That, that this open market and scaling of facts, uh, there, there is only one Facebook. And, and there's, there's no way uh, to compete against search engine or something. You can put some European subsidies in the European, the European search engine. That's going to be hard. Um, 
the same thing for technology. Um, there's, no, there's going to be a shakeout and, and new things, and, and we, of course, hoping that our trust chain, because it is green, it is scaling, it's difficult to understand, uh, but it, it uses existing trust mechanisms. So that, that is something um, that we are this legally compliant, and the legal regime that you're compatible with this, a lot of coins don't have that stuff. Um, so it's going to be the survival of the fittest, very simple. And let's try a lot. And then that also directly ties into the, uh, the European regulations. That's probably, um, if you call it fraud and um, money laundering, know your customer violations. Uh, when we talk to the, uh, the regulators uh, of various countries, and especially our own uh, country, it's just fraud. It's just they're making these fantasy promises. Like, you're going to get a 1,000 times your money back. Just give it the money. It's like, I think there's laws against that. Right? There's, there's no need for new laws, especially when, you're, when, you're, when there's no KYC yeah, right. or money laundering. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. So with my limited legal training, I had some legal training. It's like, nah. It's just a lot of people don't understand that, that like making these promises implicit, yeah, invest now, blah, blah, blah. It's just promises which are not realistic, and, and you're just defrauding them. Um, so it's more an interpretation and a culture that this is, this is not realistic which I think needs to happen. If I can just very quickly go back to the concept of uh, learning by doing, I think this is absolutely important also for the regulators in the different national contexts to adopt the same uh, perspective because without them being on board on the different pilot projects that utilities and electricity companies are trying to do, without uh, capacity within these national regulators to understand the technical uh, implications of adopting a blockchain technology or other DLTs or any other software solutions on daily basis, it's really impossible to make a future-proof regulatory framework either at national or at EU level. And, and for our members uh, and for the experts who are actually uh, on daily basis engaged in such blockchain uh, projects, one of the greatest frustrations is indeed the ability to communicate why certain tests and pilots are even not possible with international jurisdiction. So they're forced to learn of the successful experience of counterparts in uh, the Netherlands or Austria and cannot do the same kind of uh, testing and piloting in their own jurisdiction. So there needs to be a lot of open uh, co cooperative discussion on this issue at EU level if we want to really be the global leader in, glo uh, in blockchain at the time when it's supposed to... If I can directly uh, react to that, if we want to be a global leader, I think we already are. If we want to keep that position, let's put yeah, this and, and this is also fascinating. Regular, we actually talk to each other. If you go to the American ecosystem, Washington, Silicon Valley. It, it takes a right police in the middle for them to talk to each other, especially in this current climate. And so this is actually very nice that, that this, this collaboratism, this, 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 yeah, this working together, this is in our genes uh, for the past thousands of years. And a lot of other cultures, they also have a, a different uh, culture in this and this, this coziness that we have created in Europe that actually maps directly to the blockchain. Because a blockchain with yourself, it's not so it's nice. Not <laughs> it's like having the best cell phone in the world. I mean, you want to talk to yourself? <laughs> Okay, and then uh, a couple words, some way directed to me. Uh, on the initial coin offerings, we have the ESMA, European Securities uh, Markets Authority statement. If it's a security, it should be enforced as a security. There's law, um, securities fraud. This is a question of monitoring enforcement. We do have an issue with the rest, which are not financial instruments under EU law. 
And this is where we get a difference with the SEC and the US, which has a much wider net for what is a security. For those, I mean, it is an issue perhaps for the next commission, whether the so-called utility tokens need to be regulated or not, whether the secondary markets, even if they're not a security, need to be regulated or not. Smart contracts, do they need to be made legally binding across borders, not the fact that one or more member states might consider them legally binding automatically? Would they be considered throughout the digital single market? And this answers a little bit to one of the fragmentation issues. On the other hand, I mean, we have subsidiarity. The member states are free to take initiatives. And for instance, with the, the French colleagues, we're very much closely in touch. And they're doing, I think, very interesting work there. It is good if initiatives are taken at the national level as long as you don't have 17 different completely uh, contradictory uh, initiatives. Standards, this is a little bit though the commission can propose at the European level a mandate for a standard. Things for instance that are going on at ISO Technical Committee 307, it's happening. So we're, we're engaging there. There's interesting work done on reference architecture, the aforementioned smart contracts, but they won't solve our legal single market issue for us. They are addressing and discussing on a very high international level the legally binding issues. Um, in terms of the governance, what we want to do, first of all, is to make sure that an Alastria and, let's say, an infrachain in Luxembourg fit into a kind of mosaic that is both eventually technically and legally interoperable. There could be different ways to do this, where, if anything, top-down on the goal, which is Europe a leader in blockchain, and very much bottom-up in which solution is made to, to achieve that. Obviously, a legal framework is something that uh, is a little bit more, more top-down obviously in collaboration with the member states' colleagues. Finally, if there is legislation which shouldn't be on blockchain as such, we're technology neutral and future-proof in aiming things, but fitness checks will aim to make sure that in an area you could use a distributed ledger that is secure, that has such and such characteristics, which in the end could be on biological computing or God knows what. It shouldn't be linked to simply uh, blockchain, but we should get away when possible from having a single database in an area as the only solution, or even more so we still have in some legislation more nationally than at the European level, but also a little bit at the European level where paper is still required. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, unfortunately, we ran out of time. I noticed that there were some more questions. Feel free to ask directly in person the speakers. Uh, I would like to invite a, you to warmly in the, uh, in thank the, the speakers for the lively discussions and presentations we have.